0: Nine, Nine, eight, eight,
1: seven, six, five, four, three, three, two, two, one. Uh, I think that is fair to say. As I say, say,
0: hands to kiss and babies to shake. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, I think my record speaks for itself. That's a really good question.
2: I know that a picture and a portrait is not painted with a single color. It's a little more complicated.
0: That's former House Speaker John Deal of Town & Country speaking right before he resigned from office last week. Hello, this is the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio in St. Louis is...
1: Joe Manis.
0: And through the magic of radio in Jefferson City is our Jefferson City correspondent... Marshall Griffin. Thank you, Marshall, for, for joining us today. And let's just all breathe a little bit of an exhale after last week. It was a a bit nutty. We stood on our feet for hours at a time, waiting outside a door for a man to appear, um, or at least I did. I would have to say uh, probably one of the most memorable weeks I've covered in my short career covering Missouri politics. Joe, I'm sure that you've had some more memorable moments than this, but this was certainly one of the the stranger moments.
1: Yeah, this is one of the stranger moments. It wasn't the strangest. I've had some that were stranger and more sad. But yes, this is definitely up there.
0: So what we're talking about without using any more uh, pseudonyms or, or, you know, stuff like that is the, the person that you heard at the onset of this podcast, John Deal, has resigned from office. The Kansas City Star reported on Wednesday that the Republican speaker was caught sending sexually suggestive texts to a 19-year-old intern. And I think in less than about 24 or 36 hours, he had resigned his speakership and was pretty much gone by Friday. It's a pretty stunning turn of events. I know we've had speakers resign before Bob Griffin stepped down in the '90s, after he was um, investigated for federal wrongdoing, but I don't think it's happened this quickly. I think the Bob Griffin demise was a pretty slow demise that took, I think, a couple years to occur.
1: Yeah, it was less than 28 hours from the time that the that the story appeared, and Deal um, had put out a statement saying that he was going to step down, and it was less than it was almost exactly 48 hours when he actually did.
0: Yeah, Marshall, what's your what's
2: your take of all of this? Well, it, it was a, a rather unusual and and sad sad moment, I suppose, in Missouri politics. I I was at the press avail where John Deal came out and actually spoke to us Wednesday night. Um, after several uh, several reporters waited at, waited several hours for him to
0: come out and. Um, it was more like 7 or 8 hours and yeah. it was more than several reporters it was like 10 or 15 <laughs> reporters yeah and you, you were one of them and i remember
2: uh, i i relieved you and and and, and got and it reaped the benefit of all your hours of waste. I, I, I gave <laughs> yeah. up. I was hungry.
0: I was tired, and I—I I am a complete failure at staking out uh, John Deal. But oh, I, I have well, to say, you did. You, you've
1: you we you set the groundwork. I, I have to, to a, say,
0: and I, I'm not yeah. just saying this to be braggadocious. The hashtag Deal Watch. I was the first person to use that. <laughs> Bravo. <laughs> uh, well, anyway, you handed the, the baton off to me, and
2: um, and. Thank, uh fortunately, he came out and talked to us. And I've never seen a more – I've covered Deal for years. I've never seen him looked as as sad and as, you know, just as down in the dumps. As, I've never seen him look that way before. He's always been very confident, uh, a little cocky at times too. And it's it's just amazing to, to, to see the look. He, when he first came out, he tried to, you know, be his usual, you know, upbeat self. But you, you could tell that uh, he – you could tell that he knew um in his in his heart and his mind that he really really messed up and uh and you could see that he realized that in in his face but then when when we all started asking questions um you know the the old the, you know the old confidence or you know defiance i should say returned and because every question pretty much every question he was asked he answered with the statement speaks for itself the statement speaks for itself Um, And then he decided he didn't like the tone of the questions and he walked away and and we all followed him. Uh, He did answer a few yes, a few yes and no questions uh, he did answer. But uh, it's you you see on TV at times when a a disgraced politician or somebody under investigation for something, you know, gets, uh, you know, gets, you know, Surprised by a TV camera crew, and they're they're walking off. They're not answering questions. They hop in the vehicle and drive away really fast. That's exactly what happened Wednesday night with John Deal. And I never would have imagined that uh, someone that I've covered that closely recently that that it would, that I would witness that happening. Um, it, as I cover news, but it, it it was really a sad chapter in the rise of a uh, of an up and coming Missouri politician. I mean, he arguably was arguably one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful Republican in office in Missouri at, at this point in time.
1: Well, and he was very close to the business community. I think some of that is so, sort of overlooked. He was more of a business Republican. So he's really tied with a lot of the big um, business interests in St. Louis. And you wonder what some of the fallout of that is going to be.
0: Yeah, we're, we're going to give some John Deal a cooling off period before we ask him to be interviewed because he has been on this show more times than anybody else. Four. He has been fairly open to the press, and although I jabbed him on Twitter about that during Deal Watch, you know, I can understand why he probably wants to take some time out from talking with people after this, but um, you know, what does this say, Joe, about the rigors of legislative work and how it could possibly force someone as seemingly promising as as John Deal to make just really boneheaded decisions like this.
1: Well, part of it's the nature, and, and you know this, part of it's the nature of the Capitol. They're, they're like in a bubble. And the people who are important in the Capitol often forget the fact that outside the Capitol, especially outside Jeff City, nobody knows who they are. Frankly, I'm sure that if we were to pull people on the street Probably 80 percent of the people that we would jab on the street would not know who the House speaker had been, much less who the new one is.
0: I mean, it is sad. I said on St. Louis on the air that this episode is sad and, you know, just taking aside whatever political career John Deal wanted after this, uh, you know, as a as a as a father and somebody who's married, it really is sad to see people ensnared in these personal situations where. It looks like their entire livelihood and family unravels in a very public way. It's happened many times in Missouri politics, but usually not this publicly. And, you know, we'll have to see what John Deal does next, at least in his his private and business life. I think his political career right now. Is it at best on hiatus and probably done for, for a while?
1: Well he had expected to be finished after twenty sixteen anyway. I think I think for him the big thing's gonna be his personal stuff and his professional Because he is a major lawyer in town. So
0: I wanted to play a clip from Representative Gina Mitten, who's a Democratic uh, state representative from Richmond Heights. And she was one of the people that called for deal to step down as speaker on Wednesday. Right. Um, He did more than that. He not only stepped down as speaker, he has resigned from office. I want to play this clip and then and then touch on it a little bit more.
1: I think that there is a a
0: culture that I'm told is much better today than it was several years ago, Um, but I do believe that there is a culture of sexism within the Capitol,
1: and I believe that a young woman that's here as part of an internship program should not not be involved or not, not have that kind of harassment.
0: So I I need to make this point pretty clear. When we had uh, US Senator Claire McCaskill on this show about two years ago, she talked about how she was hazed by male lawyers because she was a female attorney. She talked about sexual harassment in In the the Capitol. Capitol. She talked about legislators who were openly cheating on their wives with their secretaries. So this is not a new phenomenon. And as Representative Mitten says, it may have actually have improved over time just because attitudes have changed, there's more women in the legislature now. But Marshall, do you think that she has a point that there is a culture about the Capitol in Jefferson City that is corrosive and that maybe it's time for legislators to take deep stock of, of how to change it? I, I think so. I mean, if, if anywhere that,
2: that decisions are made that can affect daily lives, change policy, or you know, or result in you know, in in uh, millions of dollars, of billions of dollars, exchanging hands or going to f- going to different places. Anywhere that those types of decisions are made, there's going to be an element of corruption and an element of people seeking power. It's you know whether it's a national capital like Washington D.C. or a state capital like Jefferson City, or in a bi- in a bigger state perhaps somewhere like Sacramento or Boston. You know, Jefferson City is a small town state capital, but it is a state capital, um, and a, a moderate of a moderate size midwestern state that has two major uh, U.S. cities and metro areas. There is the there, you know, you know power can corrupt sometimes, and uh, Jefferson City is certainly not immune to that. And you know, going back to some of those quotes, it reminded me of what uh, former Senator Joan Brace said, I believe uh, four or five years ago, uh, talking about um, an abortion bill, how. And she famously uh, in, insulted a lot of Republican lawmakers at the time, uh, saying, "You know that uh, that you know, the lawmakers are pro you know pro life when it comes to their wives and pro choice when it comes to their mistresses." Uh, that was that 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 angered a lot of people here at the that, Capitol. That, that,
0: yeah, that's a quote that's still repeated many times today. But you know, I think the other significant element of this story is not only the salaciousness and and scandal of the the deal resignation. But it's the next man up, and that is uh, Todd Richardson of Poplar Bluff. Now, as Marshall knows and as Joe knows, uh, Todd Richardson was already the, the House Majority Leader. He had already run for Congress and made a pretty good showing of it despite being a relatively new lawmaker. And I think he was seen as a lawmaker of the future because I think that it was, a, it was kind of an assumption that he was going to be House Speaker in 2017. Now he's kind of been— hoisted into this position under a cloud of, of scandal, not, a, not of his doing, obviously, of others' doing. And um, I would like to play a clip of, of Todd Richardson right now kind of responding to the question of how he is going to lead amid the turmoil in his caucus.
2: I don't think the last you know, five months have put the legislature and, and this public institution in a particularly good light. Um, And it's my great hope that beginning tomorrow, we can get back to work and focusing on uh, improving that public perception. Um, So that's going to be a priority for me as the speaker. um, And I know it's going to be a priority for our entire leadership team.
0: So, Joe, I think every House speaker kind of comes into office with an aura of promise. I've used that word about 70 times now. I think that there's an elevated level of promise for Todd Richardson for a lot of reasons, and some of that could be read in my my story that I wrote about him last week. But rather than me kind of repeat that, do you think that Todd Richardson will be able to meet the high expectations of him, or do you think the rigors of legislating are going to make some of those those, uh, promising attributes fade over time?
1: Well, some of it will be up to him. I mean, we've all seen people come into office who had— high hopes, and they soon uh, stumbled. Now, in the Richardson case, one of the interesting aspects of this is that his father had been the Republican House leader in the 1990s when the Democrats controlled the chamber, and his father was forced to step down uh, because of some personal issues related to his drinking in a car accident and Some complicated. He was forced
0: to step down from leadership, but he stayed in the legislature and he later became a circuit court judge. So he later transcended those
1: issues. But my point being is that in the immediate aftermath, things were sort of dicey within the Republican caucus. I had dealt with it. I covered a lot of it. But my point being that Todd Richardson was it was it young then, but he saw this. So I think in some cases he has a rather unique perspective because he knows firsthand the impact on a family when a member um, is uh, disgraced, even if it's just temporarily, and some of the rigors and some of the pitfalls of being in public office, he's seen for himself how it can um, be the corrosive nature of it. So in some ways, that gives him somewhat of a leg up, I would think. Because he at least he'd be aware of what of the dangers. everyone talks about it, but he's lived it, although he's lived it from the aspect of being a relative.
0: and I think beyond just that, and I touched on that briefly okay. in my story, I, I mean, okay. he has a pretty big record of accomplishment in the House. He's handled some very high profile bills that were complicated and sometimes so like contentious. I think that he's universally seen as, an excellent communicator. I, I've talked with people kind of off the cuff, and I haven't heard anything bad about him personally. It's almost all good. Republican Democrat, no matter what anyone tells you. Marshall, what's kind of your expectations of his speakership? I think it'll be a, a
2: calmer for starters. Um, one of the one of the things that John Deal had a reputation for was occasionally uh, he was not afraid to poke fun at uh, at the Democrats, and even you know you know, give them backhanded insults or backhanded compliments that were, you know, really insults. I don't think you'll see that from Todd Richardson. I think he'll be a little bit more diplomatic. Um, and I think he's already has the respect of um, of uh, Jacob Hummel, the uh, the House Democratic leader. He uh, kind of famously said on Friday that Todd Richardson has never lied to him.
1: Yes, that was a very dramatic statement for him to say that on the floor. Yeah,
0: yes. and I, I talked with another Democratic state representative, Stephen Weber of Columbia. He's, this is his last year in the House. He's running for state Senate next year. I would say just like Todd Richardson, probably one of the most promising Democratic politicians in the state. This is what he wants and expects from the speakership of Todd Richardson.
2: It does take more than one person. Although, if there is one person, it's the Speaker of the House that can they can lead that transition. So, what I would hope that he does is, is look at the situation and say, clearly, we have an ethics problem in Jefferson City. Clearly, uh, there's a culture of entitlement here. People don't for rightfully don't trust Jefferson City, and then he would say, one of my first priorities is going to be to clean that up.
0: So, before we move on to the chaos in the Senate, Joe, just a quick answer: Do you think that? Todd Richardson is going to be able to kind of calm the waters here?
1: I think in part because of the fact that Jay Cuomo likes him, which means that the Democrats who are in who are an embattled minority in the House, but the fact that they have some respect for him, uh, that also can add to a uh, reduction in the tensions because he's going to have his hands full trying to keep his caucus in line, as we've all said. But I think the fact that the Democratic minority is at least going to give him a chance, that they uh, don't see him as a divisive figure, that could help kind of calm things down in the short term. But again, it'll depend on the legislation that's brought up. It'll depend how things are are handled. Uh, to, I've said before that the fact that Richardson is from outstate Missouri uh, I know Jason disagrees with me a little bit, but I think he's going to be part of a parade of new leaders in the General Assembly who are not from the St. Louis area, and it could that's going to reduce the St. Louis area's influence, and it could cause problems on certain bills. So I think there's going to be a lot of uh, changes going on in the next year or two in the General Assembly.
0: So let's move on to what happened in the Missouri Senate last week, which would have been the top story, obviously, if the House hadn't imploded. Um, for those who weren't completely paying attention earlier in the week
1: have normal lives have normal <laughs>
0: lives um, the Senate brought up so-called right-to-work legislation which basically bars arrangements where people are required to pay union dues if a majority agree to organize did I get that correct? correct Yes. I'm terrible at actually explaining what right-to-work is we had an entire podcast about it you can kind of go back and listen to that the, the long and short of it is the Republicans used the previous question on it. It basically caused the production in the Senate to grind to a halt with the exception of a, a, a health care bill involving Medicaid. And my question to, to both Joe and Marshall, and I'll start with Marshall, is this going to bleed over into the next session? Because both you and I remember 2007 after they used three PQs that year, tensions were horrendous between the two parties right after the session and going into 2008. How do you think the two parties are going to be able to transcend this last week? Uh, that's that's a very good question. I, I, I Things are not going to heal
2: right away, obviously. Um, but there apparently there was some deal that was made between Ron Richard and Joe Keveney. Uh, Ron Richard may have made mention of it that there was a deal but would not say what it was uh the deal that allowed that that allowed the vote to go forward on Senate Bill 210 which is the uh which is, was commonly called on the floor the FRA bill the, which basically allows uh, 3.5 billion dollars uh to of uh, regular funding that nor- that Missouri would normally get that bill was uh was all but dead uh, because of this disruption between the uh in, in the Senate you know the the Senate Democrats after the PQ uh, of the right to work bill, forcing the vote on that, the Senate Democrats shut that chamber down. I I witnessed it firsthand. Uh, that I spent most of my time in the Senate last week, covering uh, the that uh, three day uh, snail crawl, and it was it, it was brutal at times. Uh, they, the uh, the 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 Democrats basically objected to and filed points of order against every single motion. And it, it normally, like for example, the the reading of the Daily Journal from the day before, normally something that uh, gets waived. Um, the uh, Democrats objected to that, forcing the entire Daily Journal to be way to be read that uh, first day uh, during the uh, shutdown. And it, it took probably forty five to fifty minutes for the uh, for the uh, Senate reader to read through that. She had to actually have somebody finish it for her. You know, that's that's the type of slowdown that the Democrats. Uh, Enacted in retaliation for forcing that right to work vote, and it, it 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 was a brutal three days. You know that Scott Sifton, who was uh, it, who basically was leading the filibuster and also leading the uh, the shutdown efforts afterwards, said that nothing is going to get through, nothing, and it is the Republicans' fault for forcing that vote. If they did, if they didn't want this shutdown, they should have let us continue with our filibuster. They should have let us continue with. With uh, the debate that we wanted to have, and and the Republicans on the other hand were saying, "Listen, we this is what this is what we want. This is our agenda. We're the majority. We should have a say in what goes on as well." Uh, I mean, it it was a, a special an all an all summer long special session could have happened if they didn't come to some type of agreement to get that that uh, medical funding bill through, and somehow or other they did it. Once they did it, they adjourned sine die and got out of there. Joe wants to make a point. Yeah,
1: I want to explain a couple things for our listeners about PQs. Uh, Previous question is a procedure used where you only need a simple majority to shut down a filibuster. Now, just so you know, the U.S. Senate does not have this rule because Aaron Burr took it out before uh, he shot, Alexander Hamilton, so this is like in 1803, Ehrenberg knocked it out of the U.S. Senate rules, and it's not in there. That's why you never right. hear about it, this it, you, in Congress. You, but it,
0: they can break a filibuster with 60 votes.
1: Correct, but the point is, they can't do it with 51. Continue. Okay, yes. okay. so so the, the but the point is, as Jason and um, Marshall have pointed out, it tends to create a lot of ill will, especially if some of the people filibustering are those who are allied with the filibusters are of the same party as the majority. And that was also the case this time. You had several Republican members of the state Senate who are not necessarily participating in the filibuster, but who sort of supported it because they didn't want to vote on this. Because you've got some suburban Republicans in the state Senate who did not want to vote on right to work because there is in places like st charles county a number of their residents are union members or retirees all it does is just inflame their constituents from these legislators point of view right and they also didn't want to vote on it because they knew that while they had enough to pass it they knew they didn't have the numbers to override well expected, that was the
0: point that i wanted to get to next veto. so i asked ron richard at his end of session uh Presser, I asked this question and then left very rudely. By the way, I apologize for that. Whether it was worth pursuing this previous question and going through all of what you just heard, when the bill in question, right to work, has a very very small chance of getting a veto overridden, this was his response.
1: We've had filibusters
2: through the this year and last year, regardless of where we're heading on issues. Uh, That's part of the process. We're not going to give up our ability to use. Uh, the previous question, as uh, part of the rules.
0: So, very briefly, because we are running a little bit short on time, do you think that this was an instance, Joe, where the previous question was worth all the acrimony, or do you think that this is just going to cause all sorts of trouble for the Republicans going forward?
1: Well, time will tell, but I think it probably will cause some problems, at least in the short term. And again, because of what I said before, there were some Republicans who opposed Right to Work or at least didn't want to vote on it. In fact, it's interesting that Senate President Pro Tem Tom Dempsey um, ended up voting against Right to Work and then he left for the rest of the final week. He had a reason. His daughter was graduating from college at to, from Tulane, but still it was rather intriguing that he voted against it and left. So He was that, part of the 2008
0: deal that was struck to stop using the previous question and I think that was one of the things that Was odd about this, like many of the senators in the Senate right now were in the House when the Senate broke down because of previous questions. Now, it's possible that they weren't paying much attention to the Senate or they didn't completely understand the ramifications because they weren't in there and didn't feel them themselves. But it seems like they obviously didn't think that the same thing that happened in 2007 would happen in 2015. To to kind of close out the show, I want to look forward a little bit. Marshall, after this session that occurred, which, as you kind of alluded to on St. Louis on the Air, had some really dark moments, including the suicides of, of State Auditor Tom Schweik and his spokesman, Spence Jackson, and just this really strange and chaotic last week. How does the General Assembly move forward from this?
2: Well, uh, they, they need a breather, for starters, which they will get because... Uh, summer has arrived. Um, and thankfully, because they were able to reach a deal on the uh, the medical funding bill, there won't be a special session. So maybe having a few months off to just collect for everyone to collectively catch their breaths uh, could help. But uh, to answer the question you asked me during the last segment that, that I don't think I ever got around to actually answering, um, I, I think that there's still going to be a lot of ill will in the Senate when they come back for veto session. I, I don't know if there will still be the uh, the efforts to to thwart every motion made on the floor, but there's still going to be a lot of raw feelings, I, I believe. I don't think enough time will have passed for the animosity to, to completely pass. Now Maybe cooler heads will prevail to some degree, but I think there's going to be some long memories about what happened last week. Joe,
0: how do you think the legislature moves forward from this past week?
1: Well, I thought one of the most intriguing things that happened was a tweet that Tom Dempsey put out after he left town and right over the weekend where he said something happened while I was gone, (laughs) which I (laughs) thought was it was trying to be flip, but also kind of sent a signal that the Senate uh, president was trying to separate himself from some of this animosity. So you wonder if there won't be a few golf games or a few other efforts made over the summer to try to um, quell some of these anger feelings. I also wonder how much impact this might have over some uh, controversial issues like photo ID or other things next session, because the whole shutdown prevented Richard from even bringing that up. And you just wonder if it kind of will hurt when he tries to do it next year because obviously he will
0: well we'll we'll be back for veto session it may be a bit anticlimactic this year unless they somehow scrounge together the republican votes to override right to work which we don't want to say they never will we don't want to say it's never going to happen but it is a tough road i think everybody acknowledges that including republicans so we'll be back to analyze that in a few months uh, thank you all very much for joining me after this very tumultuous week. To close this out, you can read all of our stories at stlpublicradio.org. You can follow me on Twitter at J Rosenbaum. You can follow Joe on Twitter at...
1: jmanis. Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And
0: you can follow Marshall on Twitter at... Marshall G. Report. We'll be back soon. Until then, so long.
1: And the chip stays in we'll
2: come out in the back room.